Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Radio Westeros, episode 42, The Hedge Knight. Spoilers all books! Hi, and welcome to Radio Westeros. Thanks so much for being here. I'm Lady Guinevere, and today I'll be bringing you part one of a new occasional series. With this episode, we begin our journey through the Duncan Egg stories, where I'll be rereading and analyzing the novellas for you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and I'm taking this opportunity, while Yoke Boy is unable to join me for a short time, to finally dig into the Hedge Knight. And of course, before I go into the rundown of today's episode, you're probably wondering why Yoke Boy is unable to be here. Well, the exciting news is that he's in the process of immigrating to the U.S., which is going to be great for the future of Radio Westeros. In the short term, he'll be taking a brief hiatus while he gets through all of the immigration red tape. And in the meantime, I'll be covering the other two Dunkin' Egg novellas at slightly irregular intervals following this one, and working around some other exciting projects and collaborations that we have in the works. So, with the luxury of some relatively short source material for once, I've been able to reread The Hedge Knight several times, and I'm quite frankly bowled over by just how much there is to talk about. There are several metatextual things of note. There's history, major themes, theories, comedy, loads of little nuggets of goodness. If you haven't reread The Hedge Knight lately, I strongly recommend it. I'm going to start today with a historical recap that will cover the state of the realm, as well as House Targaryen, including young Prince Aegon. And there's a slightly major meta issue in that section that will come up pretty quickly. I'll cover the background of Duncan Sir Arlen in that segment as well before I spend the rest of the first half on a reread-style review of the story. Then it's on to an analysis of the major theme of the story, knighthood. This is a theme George loves to write about, and we ourselves spent a fair amount of time analyzing it with our knighthood series a few years ago. Here I'll look to answer the question of whether there are any true knights to be found in the Seven Kingdoms. Next, it'll be a brief analysis of Dragon Dreams. In the main story, we see people as diverse as Daenerys, Maester Aemon, and Shireen Baratheon dreaming about dragons, but mostly in ancillary ways. Daron Targaryen's dream in this story is central to the action. In fact, it both predicts and shapes the action. So I look at Dragon Dreams, what they mean, and why they'll become increasingly important to the plot of both Duncan Egg and Song of Ice and Fire. And finally, we'll have a theory roundup. 
I'll look at three theories, one slightly offbeat one that took its inspiration from the Hedge Knight, one that we've discussed in the past and has since been confirmed, and finally one that gets to the core of Sir Duncan's raison d'etre and a very mysterious event from Westerosi history. But before we get started, I have a couple of brief announcements from the cool news category. First, you can now find Radio Westeros on Spotify, which is something a number of people have asked about at one time or another. Let us know if this is something you're excited about. Next, I want to give a big shout out to some friends who lent their vocal talents to this episode. Keep your ears peeled for Scad from Davos Fingers, Mikhail Schick from Vassals of Kingsgrave, Aziz from History of Westeros, Zach from Game of Owns, and Haley Bowery from The Manimals. Thanks so much, you guys, for being there when we called the banners. And thanks as well to all of you who contribute in so many ways to Radio Westeros, whether it's spreading the word by sharing or recommending us, commenting on our iTunes or YouTube, or by supporting us as patrons. Thanks, everyone. We couldn't do it without you. Speaking of which, and as always, here at the top of the episode, we start by giving special thanks to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Whitney, Kelly, Rory, Laura, Daniel, John Regarian, and Sister Winter. Huge thanks to you all. We appreciate you so very much. If you want to find out more about the benefits of patronage, please head on over to patreon.com slash Radio Westeros to check out our campaign. And now, it's time to get started with the Hedge Knight. The only life he knew was the life of a Hedge Knight, riding from keep to keep, taking service with this lord and that lord, fighting in their battles and eating in their halls, until the war was done, then moving on. We're told at the beginning of the Hedge Knight that it takes place, quote, about a hundred years prior to the events described in A Game of Thrones. Daron II Targaryen sits the Iron Throne, and it's springtime. And for any reader who possesses moderate background knowledge of Westerosi history, If you've consumed the main series and maybe The World of Ice and Fire, or even if you're just approaching Duncan Egg through a reread perspective, questions will soon arise about the state of the realm as it's described in this story. And that's because based on the timeline of events, as the canon currently stands, the first Blackfire Rebellion actually took place about a hundred years in the past from A Game of Thrones. So if you have that background knowledge, you'll be excused if at first you're waiting for the rebellion to be relevant to the plot. But in spite of the fact that it turns out that the Hedge Knight actually takes place about 10 years later than the header indicates, meaning a little less than 90 years prior to the events in A Game of Thrones, there's no mention of the Blackfire Rebellions in this story. Although when we come to the second story of the trilogy, we'll see how important the reverberations of the Blackfire conflict continue to be, and even more so in the third. So the Blackfires and the Blackfire Rebellions aren't mentioned in the main series through A Clash of Kings either, and it's worth noting that both The Hedge Knight and A Clash of Kings were published in the same year, 1998. The first mentions of the Blackfire Rebellion are in A Storm of Swords, published in 2000, and The Sword Sword, published in 2003. And the explanation for that is a very cool view into George's process and the meta-development of the canon. 
In a 2015 video review of A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, Linda Antonson and Elio Garcia commented on their experience gathering George's notes for The World of Ice and Fire. Following the publication of Clash of Kings and The Hedge Knight, the record indicates that George decided there were going to be more than four books and that he needed to add more history. So he started with fleshing out the story of Aegon the Unworthy, whose shadow is conspicuously absent from the Hedge Knight, in spite of the fact that he is mentioned in passing. And along with the history of Aegon IV came the story of the Blackfire Sword and his bastard children. And while there are hints from A Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings that George was probably planning some kind of imposter scheme, a la Perkin Warbeck from English history, from the implication of Varys' double dealing and the description of Baby Aegon's smashed skull in A Game of Thrones to the Mummer's Dragon in The House of the Undying from A Clash of Kings, reading The Hedge Knight makes it abundantly clear that the nuts and bolts of the Blackfire rebellions only came into play when George decided to expand the series and the historical background after this story was written. And since that plotline will take center stage in The Sworn Sword and The Mystery Knight, we'll have more on that in future episodes. For now, there's the meta reason why you won't find any reference to the Blackfires or their recent rebellion in The Hedge Knight, in spite of the events of this story involving many people who, it turns out, will have fought on both sides of the conflict. What we do learn about the Targaryens and the Hedge Knight seems to be largely positive, with the exception of certain badly behaved princes, as we'll see. And that is to say, the descriptions of the dynasty are fairly bland. They're the blood of lost Valyria and the blood of the dragon who presided over a proud dynasty of dragon lords that nonetheless seems to have fallen on slightly hard times. Early on, Dunk recalls that his mentor, Sir Arlen, had the privilege of seeing the last dragon in King's Landing, quote, a green female, small and stunted, her wings withered, None of her eggs had ever hatched. Sir Arlen would tell Dunk of rumors that Aegon III, quote, the one they named Dragonbane, or Aegon the Unlucky, had poisoned the dragons. It was said that he feared the beasts, having seen his uncle's dragon devour his mother. And after that offhand comment, the event we readers will come to know as the Dance of the Dragons is left to our imaginations. Sir Arlen also relayed to Dunk the rumor that, quote, the summers have been shorter since the last dragon died, and the winters longer and crueler, a tantalizing tidbit of dragon lore that hints that George was beginning to expand the backstory of Westeros's imbalanced seasons. The mention of Aegon IV comes in that same passage, but only as the father of the present king. We also hear that the line of Aegon the Conqueror had nearly died out in the reign of Aegon IV, which is a technical truth that sidesteps the issues of female descendants and bastards that would be fleshed out later when George added the Blackfire storyline. Daron II, the son of Aegon IV, is referred to in this story as Good King Daron, and we learn that he has four grown sons, three of whom had sons of their own. His Dornish wife is also mentioned in passing, as is his uncle Aemon the Dragon Knight, who features prominently as a legendary hero in numerous point of views from A Game of Thrones onwards, but again, whose story wouldn't be filled in for readers for many years to come. Tyrion's middle sons, Aerys and Rhaegal, are identified as bookish and mad, meek, and sickly, respectively, but we don't get any further details on any of these tantalizing name drops, 
It's clearly background that George has only just begun to develop at this point. So it appears to be a peaceful realm in springtime, and attorney has been declared to celebrate Lord Ashford's daughter coming of age. As we'll see, knights from around the realm are making their way to Ashford Meadow in the Reach, including two of King Daron's sons and four of his grandsons. Baylor Breakspear is the heir to the Iron Throne, Prince of Dragonstone, and a noted Poussant warrior. He'll be joined by his son, Prince Valar, who will act as one of the young maid's champions, and by his youngest brother, Makar. Three of Makar's sons are also planned to be in attendance, the elder two as challengers and the youngest as a squire. This youngest son of the king's youngest son is eight-year-old Aegon, who will become known to young Dunk as simply Egg, while Aegon himself will give Dunk who couldn't recall any other name than that, the more polished-sounding Duncan, to which will be added the Tall in lieu of a surname or place of origin. A Dunk, at the beginning of the story, is a youth of 16 or 17 years. No one's quite sure which. He was found as a young orphan, likely five or six years old, in King's Landing by the hedge knight Sir Arlen of Pennytree, who adopted him as his squire. While it's likely not what was intended in the original draft and publication of this story, his adoption by Sir Arlen roughly coincides with the end of the first Blackfyre Rebellion. In fact, the story we'll eventually hear about Sir Arlen's squire dying at the Battle of Redgrass Field shows the care George took in stitching this particular plot point into the story. He had to make certain details fit with the story as he had already written it, So, as strange as it is to consider, more than likely the timeline of the Blackfyre Rebellion and the Battle of Redgrass Field were molded around Dunk's life story as it was presented here in the Hedge Knight. So the Hedge Knight Sir Arlen hailed from that small village in the Riverlands, Pennytree, that we see in Jamie Lannister's point of view in A Dance with Dragons. It lay in an area that was frequently disputed between the Blackwoods and Brackens, and consequently had changed hands more than once. Dunk thinks that he was closer to 60 than 50, which fits with his childhood trip to King's Landing during the reign of Aegon III, who had died in 157 AC. Since, like so many other details in the timeline, Aegon's life story was also likely fleshed out after the Hedge Knight, this is yet another example of George's tremendously complex world-building as he tied a complicated historical storyline into these small details from the Hedge Knight. Sir Arlen had lived, quote, the life of a Hedge Knight, riding from keep to keep, taking service with this lord and that lord, fighting in their battles and eating in their halls until the war was done, then moving on. There were tourneys from time to time as well. And regarding tourneys, we know that Sir Arlen triumphed over Lord Stokeworth and the Bastard of Harrenhal in a melee at King's Landing some 16 years previously, and had even unhorsed Damon Lannister, great-grandfather to Tywin, known as the Grey Lion, in a tourney at Lannispor years prior to that. But his greatest achievement on the tourney field came in the last decade of his life. We have the tale from Dunk as he heard it from Sir Arlen himself. Sir Arlen had not ridden a tilt since the day he had been unhorsed by the Prince of Dragonstone, an attorney at Storm's End many years before. It's not every man who can boast that he broke seven lances against the finest knight in the Seven Kingdoms, he would say. I could never hope to do better, so why should I try? 
but we also get an alternate point of view from Baylor Breakspeare himself, who fills in the where and the when. It was nine years past, at Storm's End, Lord Baratheon held a hastelude to celebrate the birth of a grandson. The lots made Sir Arlen my opponent in the first tilt. We broke four lances before I finally unhorsed him. So, Sir Arlen can be forgiven for a slight exaggeration of the number of lances broken, as Prince Baylor would say, tales grow in the telling, but the experience was clearly the highlight of his career. Interestingly, this seems like it would have occurred either right after or right before he found Dunk in Flea Bottom. The Baratheon child could have been a son of Sir Lionel, who was the heir to Storm's End during the Hedge Knight, or of an unnamed sibling of his. If it was a son of Sir Lionel, uh, perhaps it was Ormond who would one day marry Egg's daughter, although the timeline's a little weird for that, or maybe an older brother who didn't live to adulthood. We don't know for sure, but it's another example of the close connection between House Targaryen and House Baratheon that George proceeded to weave into this backstory as he wrote it. As Dunk's master, we learn that Sir Arlen was fair and generous with praise. He was a small man who believed in the code of knighthood and did his best to pass on all of his skills and values to his young squire. His honor and the accoutrement of his knighthood, horses, arms, and armor would have been his most precious possessions. Sir Arlen went on to fight with Lords Caron and Dondarrion against a rebel known as the Vulture King in the Red Mountains of Dorne around 206 AC, and that seems to have been his last significant attachment, which makes sense for an aging hedge knight. The opening of the novella finds him recently dead of a chill en route to Ashford for Lord Ashford's tourney. The old man had always loved to watch the sunset. Another day done, he would sigh, and who knows what the morrow will bring us, hey, Dunk? Well, one morrow had brought rains that soaked them to the bones, and the one after had brought wet, gusty winds, and the next, a chill. By the fourth day, the old man was too weak to ride, and now he was gone. Our first glimpse of Dunk is as he's digging a grave for his recently dead master. For a young man now alone in the world, he's remarkably composed, displaying that cool under pressure demeanor that we'll come to know as we progress through the novellas. But it's not that he isn't moved by the old man's death. He thinks how hard it will be to cover that old face with dirt once he's in the hole, and he offers a short but very sweet eulogy. I'd leave your sword, but it would rust in the ground. The gods will give you a new one, I guess. I wish you didn't die, sir. You were a true knight, and you never beat me when I didn't deserve it. Except that one time in Maidenpool. It was the end boy who ate the woman's pie, not me. I told you. It don't matter now. The gods keep you, sir. So in addition to his composure, note Dunk's sense of fairness that's evident in that passage. Even in this solemn moment, he makes a protest about an occasion when he was unjustly accused of a crime. He says it doesn't matter, but make no mistake, it does. Dunk, as we'll come to know, has a very clear-eyed sense of right and wrong, and that's based on the code of knighthood, as Sir Arlen must have taught him. 
And while he clearly demonstrates that he knows his place in the world he lives in and is highly respectful of authority, he's by no means a simpleton, even though his simple values and the logic and honesty with which he applies them to his life gives him an unworldly air that sets him apart from more sophisticated folk. It's no accident that he'll think a lot about being thick and being a fool, and we'll see this theme develop in this and future stories as well. But first, Dunk has to make a decision. What will become of him now that his mentor has died? Neither Dunk nor Sir Arlen had any family, and so Dunk now finds himself in possession of three horses, the palfrey Sweetfoot, the warhorse Thunder, and his own nag Chestnut, a small purse, and a pile of knightly gear, chainmail hauberk, iron half-helm, sword belt and longsword, dagger, razor, and whetstone, greaves and gorget, a war lance, and an oaken shield. The Warhorse Thunder is noted to be the most valuable part of Dunk's inheritance, and Thunder will be at the crux of Dunk's decision. As he sees it at first, he has two choices. If I sold Thunder an old chestnut and the saddles and bridles too, I'd come away with enough silver to... Dunk frowned. The only life he knew was the life of a hedge knight. Which leads to option two and three. I could find another hedge knight in need of a squire to tend his animals and clean his mail, he thought. Or maybe I could go to some city, Lannisport or King's Landing, and join the city watch. But it turns out there's actually a fourth option, and or else. Reviewing Sir Arlen's possessions, now his own by default, Dunk picks up the sword and thinks, It fits my grip as well as it ever fit his. And there is a tourney at Ashford Meadow. And the next thing we know, Dunk is approaching an inn beside a stream with his three horses. He sees a scrawny lad, bald and naked, just getting out of the stream, and, assuming him to be the stable boy, tells him to tend his horses, adding, I am a knight, I'll have you know. So it really doesn't seem like this was meant to be a matter for debate. When contemplating his options earlier, knighthood wasn't part of the equation at first. Selling off his knightly accoutrement or becoming a squire or a guardsman are quite simply not things a true knight would consider doing. But then came the or else, and the clear implication of a burgeoning thought centered around that little pile of knightly goods, his own blossoming skills in the martial arts, and attorney. Dunk made a conscious decision to become a knight that day. He wasn't dubbed by Sir Arlen in fact, but in spirit, perhaps he was. Sir Arlen left Dunk everything he had, and as his knighthood was his most valuable possession, perhaps it's only fitting that Dunk should have assumed that mantle as well. And in spite of avoiding the question with typically cagey replies for several years after Dunk and Egg were introduced, it's worthy of note that George did finally confirm at a convention in 2004 that Dunk was never knighted by Sir Arlen. So just in case one harbors any doubts after reading all his stories, there's that. And I'll continue to point out the little hints that George lays out for us, especially with regard to possible future knighthood, since apparently George specifically noted by Sir Arlen. Okay, so after leaving his horse with the boy, Dunk enters the inn and orders himself a lavish meal from the innkeep. The only other patron appears to be a drunk young lordling, passed out in his wine. But as Dunk talks to the innkeeper about the tourney, the lordling wakes up and stares at Dunk from across the room, exclaiming, 
I dreamed of you. You stay away from me, do you hear? You stay well away. And of course, this turns out to be Prince Daron Targaryen. Not that Dunk has any idea of that for a long time. We'll be talking about dragon dreams later in the episode. But initially, this exchange leaves Dunk puzzled, although he just concludes that the young man is, quote, a sad creature, which is likely not an opinion he'll revise even after learning that he's a prince. After his meal and determined to keep on for Ashford, he returns to the stable for his horses and encounters the stable boy again, only now the boy has had the cheek to don Dunk's armor and climb up on the warhorse Thunder. So Dunk's torn between amusement and teaching the boy a stern lesson about safety and respect for other people's belongings. Still assuming him to be the stable boy and the son of the innkeep, there's a comical conversation at cross purposes that's revealing on two levels. When queried about what his mother would think, the boy reveals that his mother is dead, which leads Dunk to ask if he's an orphan. The boy cleverly avoids this and all questions pertaining to his identity, answering the question with a question, are you? Dunk's answer, I was, with the internal addendum, until the old man took me in, says a lot about his relationship with Sir Arlen and his recent bereavement. Dunk rejects the suggestion of taking on a squire, but there's the spark of a sense of affinity with the young boy that shortly will evolve into the impulse to pay forward Sir Arlen's act of kindness in taking him in all those years ago. The shadows of the afternoon were growing long when Dunk reined up on the edge of broad Ashford Meadow. Three score pavilions had already risen on the grassy field. Some were small, some large, some square, some round, some of sailcloth, some of linen, some of silk, but all were brightly colored with long banners streaming from their center poles, brighter than a field of wildflowers with rich reds and sunny yellows countless shades of green and blue, deep blacks and grays and purples. Riding overnight, Dunk arrives at Ashford Meadow the following afternoon. Having been well-schooled in heraldry by Sir Arlen, he notes the banners of what he thinks must be every noble house in the West and South. Among them, Caron, Baratheon, Tarly, Dondarrion, Fossaway, Lannister, Estermont, Bracken, Blackwood, Marbrand, Malister, Cargill, Westerling, Swan, Mullendore, Hightower, Florent, Frey, Penrose, Stokeworth, Derry, Perrin, and Wilde. Later, we'll also confirm Tyrell, Tully, Harding, Beesbury, and Ristling in attendance, not to mention members of House Targaryen and Roland Craycall, Willem Wilde, and Donald of Duskendale of the Kingsguard. Just the mentioned banners covers houses from the Reach, Westerlands, Stormlands, Riverlands, Crownlands, and even one from the Vale. We know Northerners aren't much fraternities, which really only leaves the question of why there aren't any knights from Dorne on hand. We can only assume that, even though the fact that Darren's wife was Dornish is mentioned, George hadn't yet fully developed that part of the storyline dealing with the peace with Dorn and the marriage of Daron's sister Daenerys to the ruling Prince of Dorn and the influx of Dornish counselors into his own court 
that would be such a factor in the conflict between loyalists and Blackfires in the Blackfire rebellions. So anyway, after making camp under an elm tree beside a pool, Dunk cares for his horses first, as a true knight should, and then bathes, as a true knight also should, at least once a month. And as he sits drying, he notices a dragonfly and thinks, why would they name it a dragonfly? It looks nothing like a dragon. And then, one of those lovely ironic nuggets, not that Dunk had ever seen a dragon. And the narrative goes on to tell about Sir Arlen seeing the last dragon in King's Landing, but let's make note of this type of statement, or nugget as I'm calling them. Considering that dragon frequently refers to members of House Targaryen, in retrospect, we know that Dunk has seen a dragon. Two, in fact. And shortly, he'll be seeing many more, to the point that he might soon wish he had never seen a dragon. The Hedge Knight is full of these clever little nuggets, which is what makes it so wonderful for a reread. I like to imagine the fun George had writing this story, putting in all these little hints and winks, knowing they'd only make sense in retrospect, but that then, and taken as a whole, they point really clearly to the truth of the hidden identity that he's laying out. Because, make no mistake, as much as we in the fandom joke about secret Targaryens, Hidden identity is really one of George's favorite devices. Whether we're talking about big secrets, like Jon Snow, Targaryens hiding in plain sight, like Maester Aemon, Targaryens thought to be dead who aren't, like Bloodraven, or numerous, as yet unresolved, mysterious identities, like Melisandre, Septa Lamor, or Quaith, or even a plethora of identities speculated about by fans, like Varys and Illyrio, a Song of Ice and Fire is actually rife with hidden princes, to name the trope. Not that every person with a mysterious identity is an actual prince. And remember that when you read The Hedge Knight for the first time, if you're spoiler-free, the true identity of the boy Egg is hidden, not just from Dunk and others in the story, but from the reader. As such, The Hedge Knight is a great vehicle for observing how George lays out hints and sly comments about this type of mystery, which is something we can then apply to similar situations in the main story. So I'll be keeping my eyes open for more nuggets like that. In the meantime, Dunk goes to the tourney grounds on a mission. Being much larger than Sir Arlen was, he needs armor specially made for him. The Silk City of the tourney grounds has every type of vendor and entertainment imaginable on offer, from foods of all types and clothing to jugglers, magicians, and puppeteers, and yes, arms and armor. We get our first glimpse of the Dornish puppeteer Tanzel, quote, a tall drink of water with the olive skin and black hair of Dorn, before Dunk finds his way to the stall of Steely Pate the Smith. It becomes clear that armor for the tourney is going to be a costly investment, and in spite of a deal being struck for 600 silver stags, the reader is aware that Dunk only possesses two silvers, which he hands over as a deposit and returns to his camp in a somber mood, since there's only one answer to raising 598 silvers by the next day, and it's a dangerous gamble for a hedge knight to start selling off one's possessions with no guarantee of any return. But before he can make a final decision, he discovers an unannounced visitor at his camp. The boy from the inn has followed him, and what's more, has, uninvited, taken up the role of squire, washing his clothes, grooming his horses, and cooking a meal. Though he's surprised and not necessarily pleased, Dunk can't help but be impressed by the boy's hard work. 
Although his attitude might leave a bit to be desired. When he tells the boy his name is Dunk, he's told in no uncertain terms that that's no name for a knight. Although Dunk can't remember ever being called anything else, he accepts the full name Duncan from the boy and supplies the tall himself, since he can use neither his own place of origin, Flea Bottom, nor Sir Ireland's Penny Tree, since he's never even been there. In this scene, we see again that the boy avoids mentioning his name, his background, and his identity, using the nickname Egg when Dunk asks, and sidestepping Dunk's query about his hair, although he does boldly tell Dunk that he comes from King's Landing, which combined with his earlier confession about having a dead mother, reinforces that sense of affinity that Dunk has with the boy. And so the exchange, along with Egg's actions, convinces Dunk to take the boy on officially for the duration of the tourney. As he gives Egg his decision and his first instructions, he thinks, he wondered if the old man was looking down on him. I'll teach him the arts of battle, the same as you taught me, sir. He seems a likely lad. Might be one day he'll make a knight. So, again, a little bit of a wink and a giggle there, if you're reading with the full knowledge of who Egg is, of course. This likely lad will one day become the king, a king called the Unlikely. And also, even though Sir Arlen didn't knight Dunk, it's pretty likely that someone will, and you have to wonder about the last part of that sentence. Might be one day he'll make a knight. Is it possible that Egg himself will secretly or not knight Dunk one day, making him a knight? It's an idea that I've always favored, though I think the answer in truth is going to be many years in the future for us. Anyway, the day concludes with Duncan Egg falling asleep beneath the elm tree and Dunk looking up at the sky to see a falling star, bright green, streaking across the sky. Luck, he thought, his alone, since of all the competitors, he alone had the good fortune to be sleeping under the stars. Come the morning, Dunk sets out with Sweetfoot to the castle, seeking Lord Ashford's master of the games and master of horse. Leaving Egg at his camp, he thinks, I'm a great fool to trust the boy so far. But it's no more than the old man did for me. The mother must have sent him to me so that I could pay my debt. A dunk feeling a fool is nothing new and will develop into a recurring theme, while the payment of debts and his relationship with the boy Egg is something that we'll be discussing later in the episode. The steward of Ashford, Master Plummer, is reluctant to add Dunk to the lists, requiring some positive form of identification that he's actually a knight, hopefully in the form of another knight vouching for him. As Dunk leaves to search out someone on the turning grounds who knew him or Sir Arlen, Plummer verbalizes the very problem that Dunk has likely been struggling with. Those vanquished in tourney forfeit their arms, armor, and horse to the victors and must needs ransom them back. As his very next move will be to sell the only thing of value he possesses other than thunder in order to finance his armor, it's becoming clear what a gamble the young man is planning. One loss could ruin him and leave him destitute with nothing but chestnut and a few coppers to his name. Still, he persists, seeking out the master of horse. But before you can find that man, a party of at least a hundred riders enters the castle yard. Their banners identify them as House Targaryen, the royal house, though which members are present is yet unknown. And in this scene, we get an ironic inversion to what's going on with Duncan Egg. As Dunk watches their arrival from the stable door, one of the princes rides up, saying, Boy, let go of that nag and see to my horse. 
Horrified, Tunk replies, I'm not a stable boy, my lord. The obnoxious prince, who will of course turn out to be Egg's older brother, Arion, then asks for wine in a pretty wench, at which point Dunk has to tell him that he's not a servant either. I have the honor to be a knight, he says, which only gains him scorn and an insult from the prince. So compare the first part of their exchange to Dunk and Egg at the inn. Are you the stable boy? I want my palfrey rubbed down, and oats for all three. Can you tend to them? While, by contrast, Dunk is more polite than the prince, Arion's assumption is the same type of mistaken identity that led to Egg becoming Dunk's squire. There'll be no such second chapter here, but it's a clever little device that, in retrospect, might be taken as a hint to Egg not being what he seems to be. It ends with Dunk thinking he had no business speaking to princes, which is another little wink, since, of course, he's been ordering a prince around like a stable boy for the past two days. After his run-in with Arion, Dunk had a moment to address himself to the king's guard who had accompanied the royal party. Sir Donal of Duskendale, not a member of House Darkland, according to George, and Sir Roland Craycall were not there to join the lists, Dunk was relieved to hear. They are merely fulfilling the obligations of their duty as king's guard. Shortly after, Dunk is dismissed by the Master of Horse, who says, My Lord of Ashford has no need of such, but he's referred to a stableman in town, who ultimately agreed to buy Sweetfoot for the price of 750 silver stags. On his way to deliver the price of his armor to Steely Pate, Dunk stopped to watch the Dornish puppeteers again. He's really becoming very sweet on the girl Tanzel, though he has yet to learn her name. And he also encounters Sir Stephen Fossaway and his cousin and squire, Raymond, which will be a key connection going forward. Dunk tells Raymond when discussing the tourney, I will not enter the lists until the third day. His anxiety is high, having observed several knights at their practice, not to mention Raymond training with his cousin, and Dunk thinks, if he's only a squire, what business do I have being a knight? One of us is a fool. And as I said, Dunk feeling a fool is a recurring theme, although we'll soon see a line drawn directly between fools and heroic knights. But first, a knight needs his armor, and the approval of Lord Ashford's steward. Collecting the armor was the easy part, although parting with all that silver might have been a little difficult. But Sir Manfred Dondarrion had denied any recollection of Sir Arlen, and without the sponsorship of another knight, his prospects were looking pretty dim. Dunk found Master Plummer in the Great Hall at Ashford, along with Lord Ashford and a dozen other men, two of whom would turn out to be Prince Baylor and Prince Makar Targaryen. When Dunk entered, they were discussing the disappearance of Makar's heir, Daron, along with his youngest son, Aegon. While the others may have seen Dunk's entrance as an intrusion, Baylor Targaryen was the soul of courtesy, though Dunk was as yet unaware of his identity. When Dunk confessed that he hadn't found anyone to vouch for him, Baylor commented that he had known Sir Arlen. And still unaware of the man's identity, Dunk submitted to Baylor's questioning about Sir Arlen, ending with the story of the tourney at Storm's End where Sir Arlen had broken four, not seven, lances against the Prince of Dragonstone in the first tilt. Poor Dunk is truly comical when the penny drops, feeling the fool again, but his earnestness and honesty clearly win him points with the prince, who tells Lord Ashford that he has no objections to Sir Duncan joining the lists. And just like that, Dunk is in, an acknowledged knight, 
with a single instruction that he must use a shield with his own device, as the laws of heraldry prevent him from using Sir Arlen's. And so it was off to the tourney grounds again, where Dunk seeks out the puppeteers, who he's perceived have some artistic talent. Having earlier left Egg to enjoy himself among the vendors and entertainers, he finds the boy entranced by the story of Florian and Jonquil as presented by the puppet troupe. Motley barded knight, dragon, giant, and all. So Dunk approaches Tansel once again and asks if she would be able to repaint his shield for him. She would, but she needs to know what's his chosen device, and since he has no idea, he says he feels a fool. All men are fools, and all men are knights, she says, a line from the story of Florian, which is meant to make him feel better, but it also connects the theme of Dunk feeling a fool with knighthood, and, considering that the line actually concludes where women are concerned, there's a little bit of foreshadowing there as well. Anyway, after considering, he suggests a field the color of sunset for the shield, while Egg suggests the elm tree as a device. Dunk agrees, but requests the addition of a falling star above the tree, referencing his luck from the previous night. The girl gives him her name, Tansel Too Tall. Not too tall at all, says Dunk. In fact, she's just right for... Puppets! Dunk is adorably awkward, uh, which is on full display here. And given her regular appearance on the page, so is the fact that Tansel isn't going to be just an extra in this story. You are no knight. I know you. You are Florian the Fool. I am, my lady, as great a fool as ever lived, and as great a knight as well. A fool and a knight? I've never heard of such a thing. Sweet lady, all men are fools and all men are knights where women are concerned. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The first day of the tourney dawned with five champions set to defend their titles. Valar Targaryen, Humphrey Harding, Leo Tyrell, and the Ashford Maid's two brothers. Prince Baylor was in the stands, but the day found Makar and Sir Roland Craighall of the Kingsguard out searching for the missing princes, Daron and Aegon. In the first tilt, Harding would defeat Lord Tully and Tyrell, Lord Daemon Lannister, while Prince Valar would prevail over Sir Abelar Hightower. The Ashford brothers would be defeated by Sir Tybalt Lannister and Sir Lionel Baratheon. The rest of the day saw numerous tilts in which a Karen, a Malister, and a Swan, a Beesbury, a Penrose, and a one-eyed knight called Sir Robin Ristling all fell to the champions. 
And then Arion Targaryen took the field, challenging Sir Humphrey Harding, the lowest ranked of the five champions, who otherwise at this point consisted of only the highest ranked knights and lords. Egg was demonstrably distressed as soon as Arion appeared, even shouting, Kill him! Kill him! as the tilt began. Dunk watched in horror and disbelief as Arion apparently, intentionally, left his lance too low, with disastrous consequences. Sir Humphrey's horse was impaled on Arion's lance, and Humphrey's leg was shattered when he fell between his dying horse and the rail. Following the disgraceful dehorsing, Sir Humphrey was actually declared the winner and Arian's charger was awarded to him by the Lord of Ashford. The fifth champion spot was left empty, with Sir Humphrey's standard remaining up as a mark of chivalry, as ordered by Prince Baylor. Dunk heard the conclusion from Raymond Fossaway, including the ominous statement, They say Arian is in a rage at Lord Ashford for awarding his charger to Sir Humphrey. Considering his chances now for the matchups, Dunk knows that of the four remaining champions, should they all make it through the second day, that he would stand little chance against Leo Tyrell, Lionel Baratheon, or Tybalt Lannister. Prince Valor, on the other hand, had not impressed Dunk as a first-class jouster, but he thinks, a hedge knight cannot challenge a prince. And what a fantastic thought to have on page in light of what would happen shortly. As an aside, regarding the tourney format, which we saw on day one, was quite elaborate, George once told the fan that he modeled Ashford after the tourney in Ivanhoe, and for a very specific dramatic reason. I wanted Dunk to have to risk all he had going up against one of five champions, rather than simply drawing an opponent by lot and maybe catching a break. If the champions are as formidable as the fair maids were at Ashford, the challengers face a much more difficult task than if they stand to draw any foe in the field. And I confess, I've always loved the scene in Ivanhoe where the disinherited knight rides down the line and knocks down all five Norman shields, and I wanted to do my version thereof. And while there won't turn out to be a similar dramatic moment in The Hedge Knight, we can always trust George to come up with something maybe a little bit better, as we'll see shortly. In the meantime, Raymond Fossaway renews his offer to share a cup of wine with Dunk, but Dunk's eager to retrieve his shield from Tansel, who had been occupied with telling the tale of Nymeria's landing, including a rousing sea battle between two ships. Egg, who has been quite taken with the puppeteers himself, offered to go wait for her to finish so Dunk could join Raymond. Considering the day's events, the talk was naturally about House Targaryen. From Arion, a bad piece of work, the talk turned to the reason Makar had been absent, searching for his missing heir, a notable drunkard, and his youngest son. Poor Makar, says Raymond, which Tunk really can't understand. He's the king's son, after all. Here is Raymond's reply, ending where he's interrupted, about to detail what's objectionable about Aegon. The king's fourth son, not quite as bold as Prince Baylor, nor as clever as Prince Ares, nor as gentle as Prince Rago, and now he must suffer seeing his own sons overshadowed by his brothers. Daron is a sot. Arion is vain and cruel. The third son was so unpromising they gave him to the Citadel to make a maester of him. And the youngest... And right then, as if on cue, the next line is, Sir! Sir Duncan! Egg burst in, panting. And there he is! Makar's youngest son! You can almost hear George cackling as he virtually knocks us on the head with that secret identity. 
Egg turns out to be distraught because Arian, who we know is in a rage over his declared loss in the lists, is hurting Tencel. Dunk runs for the turning ground, ignoring Raymond's words of caution. A prince of the blood! Be careful! At the puppeteer's booth, it seems like they had been performing Florian and Jonquil again, as several Targaryen men-at-arms were setting about destroying the puppets from that story. Arion had Tansil by the arms and was twisting, ignoring her pleas. When he bent her finger so hard it broke, and proving the truth of Florian's words, all men are fools, all men are knights, where women are concerned, Dunk went for Arion, sending several men-at-arms flying in the process. Here's the passage. Three long strides, then Dunk grabbed the prince's shoulder and wrenched him around hard. His sword and dagger were forgotten, along with everything the old man had ever taught him. His fist knocked Arion off his feet, and the toe of his boot slammed into the prince's belly. When Arion went for his knife, Dunk stepped on his wrist and then kicked him again, right in the mouth. He might have kicked him to death right then and there, but the princeling's men swarmed over him. He had a man on each arm and another pounding him across the back. No sooner had he wrestled free of one than two more were on him. Once Dunk was subdued, Arion was suddenly dangerous again, asking, Why did you throw your life away? For this whore, she's scarcely worth it. A traitor. The dragon not never lose. Dunk realizes then that the prince is mad, but he's still a royal prince, and Dunk assumes he's about to be killed. But just as the men-at-arms close in to do Arion's bidding, Egg is back, commanding them to stop. And Tunk is understandably distressed and urges Egg to run away or they'll hurt him. But the boy stands his ground, saying, No, they won't. And if they do, they'll answer to my father and my uncle as well. Let go of him, I said. Dunk still, even now, can't understand what's happening, at which point Raymond and Sir Stephen Fossaway arrive with a party of men-at-arms, apparently to help or maybe simply to keep the peace. But Arion ignores them all and addresses Egg as an impudent wretch, wondering what happened to his hair. And then the reveal, just in case, like Dunk, you're still trying to wrap your mind around it. I cut it off, brother, said Egg. I didn't want to look like you. I was supposed to squire for Darren. He's my oldest brother. I learned everything I had to learn to be a good squire, but Darren isn't a very good knight. He didn't want to ride on the tourney, so after we left Summerhall, he stole away from our escort. Only instead of doubling back, he went straight on toward Ashford, thinking they'd never look for us that way. It was him shaved my head. He knew my father would send men hunting us. Darren has common hair, sort of a pale brown, nothing special. But mine is like Arian's and my father's. The second day of the tourney finds Dunk imprisoned in a tower room while the tourney carries on without him. As he mulls over the situation he's found himself in, he recalls something Sir Arlen had said many years before. A hedge knight is the truest kind of knight, Dunk. Other knights serve the lords who keep them, or from whom they hold their lands, but we serve where we will, for men whose causes we believe in. Every knight swears to protect the weak and innocent, but we keep the vow best, I think. 
Sir Arlen was really speaking of the freedom that comes with independence and the high standards a man who answers only to himself must hold himself to. And Dunk seems to have an innate understanding of that truth while sharing in the old man's idealism. And while he wonders when and if anyone will ever come for him and what will happen when they do, the door opens and Egg comes in with food and drink. Egg tells Dunk he's been commanded to humbly beg your forgiveness for deceiving you. He explains about his name and Daron and his hair and how he wanted to be a squire, but Daron didn't want to be a knight. He tells Dunk that Daron, quote, meant for us to hide until the tourney was over. Only then you took me for a stable boy, and I didn't care if Daron fought or not, but I wanted to be somebody's squire. I'm sorry, sir. Truly I am. And then it says, Dunk looked at him thoughtfully. He knew what it was like to want something so badly that you'd tell a monstrous lie just to get near it. I thought you were like me, he said. Maybe you are. Only just not the way I thought. So here's a very clear indication that Dunk himself had told an impulsive lie to get something that he deeply desired. As in the beginning of the story, there really doesn't seem to be very much gray here. It's pretty much laid out that both Dunk and Egg had claimed to be something they were not in order to get to Ashford Tourney. At the outset, as much as Egg wasn't a stable boy or a squire, Dunk wasn't a knight. But in a very real way, each had proven himself to the other, and somehow they would both earn the roles that they had wanted so badly. So, apologies out of the way at understanding achieved, Egg takes Dunk to an audience with his uncle, Prince Baylor. True to form, Dunk is protective of his squire, asserting that he meant no harm with his behavior. Baylor agrees, but he adds, One need not intend harm to do it. Aegon should have come to me when he saw what his brother was doing to those puppeteers. Instead, he ran to you. That was no kindness. What you did, sir. Well, I might have done the same in your place. But I am a prince of the realm, not a hedge knight. It is never wise to strike a king's grandson in anger, no matter the cause. Tonk already knows the trouble he's in, but there's more. After asking Egg to leave them in private, Prince Baylor fills Duncan on the rest. Of course, Arion has been telling his side of the tale to Makar, and Egg's protestations aren't worth much because he's in disgrace, but add to that, Prince Daron has been found, and, quote, to excuse his own cowardice, he told Makar that a huge robber knight, chance met on the road, made off with Aegon. I fear you have been cast as this robber knight, sir. In Daron's tale, he has spent all these days pursuing you hither and yon to win back his brother. Furthermore, Arion is making the most of the story of the puppet show, portraying the death of a dragon, the sigil of the royal house. Acknowledging that it was likely an innocent story, Baylor points out that Arion would like to paint it as a treasonous act, quote, a veiled attack on House Targaryen, an incitement to revolt. A century in the future, Illyrio Mopatis would tell Tyrion Lannister, you Westerosi are all the same. You sow some beast upon a scrap of silk and suddenly you're all lions or dragons or eagles. And Daron Targaryen will say this about his own brother, Arion's quite the monster. He thinks he's a dragon in human form, you know. That's why he was so wroth at that puppet show. A pity he wasn't born a foss away. Then he'd think himself an apple, and we'd all be a deal safer. But there you are. 
So the Westerosi identification with sigils has likely caused quite a few problems, but none more serious than the case of Arian Targaryen. From this situation, where his extreme offense and subsequent attack of an innocent girl would lead to a very dire situation and set in motion a series of events that would ultimately lead to the downfall of his house, to his own personal future, where his identification with the sigil of his house would lead to his own death, and his legacy in Westerosi legend being as the prince who thought he was a dragon, we can probably all agree that the realm might have been better off if Arion was a Fossaway, though in that case he might have taken issue with cider makers rather than puppeteers, and who knows the chaos that would have ensued. Speaking of puppeteers, one little note of interest is that the story the puppeteers appear to be acting out when the dragon is slain is Florian and Jonquil. Although Florian is described as a knight, and stories about him use the language of chivalry, he is apparently a first man, and in any case his stories clearly predate the Targaryen arrival in Westeros, meaning the puppet show seems to depict a pre-conquest dragon fight, and should be included in the catalogue of evidence that wild dragons could once be found all over Westeros, placing Florian alongside other notable dragon slayers like Galadon of Morn, Serwin of the Mirror Shield, and even Nimble Dick Crab's personal hero, Crackbones. And now, back to Dunk's predicament. Prince Baylor clearly doesn't want to see a worthy knight lose his hand and foot for his crime of striking a prince of the blood, so he tells him there's another choice, an option to defend his name and place his fate in the hands of the gods. Any knight accused of a crime has the right to demand trial by combat, And so the question for Dunk becomes, how good a knight are you, truly? And while we know that he's not at all confident in his horsemanship or skill at arms, compared to some of the high lords he'd seen practicing and competing in the past few days, he clearly assents to demand a trial by combat. But in advising this course, Baylor reckoned without Arion's cowardice and his sly artifice. Brought before Lords Tyrell and Ashford and Prince Baylor as judges, as well as Makar, Daron, and Arion as accusers, Dunk demands his trial by combat, but Arion swiftly counters by requesting a trial of seven. Makar seems to hit the nail on the head when he wonders if his son is afraid to face Dunk alone, but Arion, all smiles, asserts that he wants to give his elder brother Daron, also a victim of Sir Duncan, the chance to participate. Dunk is at a loss since he's never heard of a trial by seven. Prince Baylor, clearly discomforted that his nephew is plotting this particular course, explains, It is another form of trial by combat. Ancient. Seldom invoked. It came across the narrow sea with the Andals and their seven gods. In any trial by combat, the accuser and accused are asking the gods to decide the issue between them. The Andals believed that if the seven champions fought on each side, the gods, being thus honored, would be more like to take a hand and see that a just result was achieved. Lord Tyrell wonders if the Andals might have simply liked fighting, but he continues, Regardless, Sir Arion is within his rights. A trial of seven it must be. Using the style Sir rather than the honorific Prince emphasizes Arion's knighthood, perhaps meant by Lord Tyrell to underline his rights to demand this trial, but to the reader it's a reminder that, whether he's acted like one or not, Arion is a knight, and in that sense, it serves as an equalizer. 
But while a traditional trial by combat comes down to the basic precept, may the best man win, a trial by seven demands that two sides of seven knights fight in what's ultimately a smaller, more structured version of a melee. Dunk is confused at first, and then utterly dismayed. Recall that he couldn't find a single knight among the company to vouch for him when he first arrived and attempted to join the lists two days earlier. In despair, he thinks, they might as well have told him to find 6,000. He had no brothers, no cousins, no old comrades who had stood beside him in battle. Why would six strangers risk their own lives to defend a hedge knight against two royal princelings? Dunk asks what will happen if he cannot find six champions, and Makar's reply sounds like a sneer. If a cause is just, good men will fight for it. If you can find no champions, sir, it will be because you are guilty. Could anything be more plain? And so Dunk is released to prepare for the trial in the morning. The night's half past, and he wanders out to the tourney grounds. Considering his options, he thinks... He wondered if they expected him to saddle a horse and flee. He could, if he wished. That would be the end of his knighthood, to be sure. He would be no more than an outlaw henceforth, until the day some lord took him and struck off his head. Better to die a knight than to live like that, he told himself stubbornly. So determined, when he discovers his horses at the Fossway Pavilion, he begins to feel a sense of hope. Learning of the trial, Sir Stephen tells him, Sir Duncan... I saw what Arion did to those puppeteers. I am for you. Seeing a chance at seizing some glory for himself, perhaps, Sir Stephen then sets out to find five more knights to join their cause. His cousin Raymond is unconvinced and urges Dunk to seek his own champions. At that point, Egg arrives in the tent along with his brother, Daron. Egg has come to act as a squire, though not with his father's blessing, and Daron has come to offer a half-hearted apology and some reassurance of sorts, along with a warning. Makar means to join Arian's cause, and with him, the three members of the King's Guard who were present at Ashford. This leaves them still one night short, but no matter, says Daron, Arian will find someone. If need be, he'll buy a champion. He has no lack of gold. Against this, Dunk has only Sir Stephen, and so Egg declares that he will bring knights. Dunk protests that he's going against his family, and Egg gives him a glimpse of what it's like to be Arian's little brother. He used to come into my bedchamber at night and put his knife between my legs. He had too many brothers, he'd say. Maybe one night he'd make me his sister. Then he could marry me. He threw my cat in the well, too. He says he didn't, but he always lies. So Arian's a monster, somewhat akin to Joffrey Baratheon, and Daron agrees with Egg and then asks Dunk for a private word. He wants to tell Dunk that he dreamed of him, which Dunk has already heard at the inn, but this time Daron elaborates. I dreamed of you in a dead dragon, you see. A great beast, huge, with wings so large they could cover this meadow. It had fallen on top of you, but you were alive and the dragon was dead. So, more on dragon dreams later. For now, Darren just wants to tell Dunk that he'll withdraw his accusation and obtain a promise that Dunk won't kill him. And then he offers his apology and departs. It may be that I've killed you with my lie. If so, I am sorry. I'm doomed to some hell I know, likely one without wine. I will not enter the lists until the third day. 
And so the third day of the tourney dawned, and Dunk's earlier words to Raymond Fossaway about entering the lists on the third day are now extremely significant. Dunk will appear on the tourney grounds today, but not in the capacity he had planned. First, he must find his champions. And, not trusting in Sir Stephen's promise to return with five knights, Egg and Raymond had set out to enlist champions of their own. In the meantime, Dunk goes to retrieve his shield. He finds Steely Pate, who tells him the puppeteers have made for Dorne. Well gone is well forgot, but that Tansel left Dunk's shield with him. She had finished the paint job, and, quote, The sunset colors were rich and bright, the tree tall and strong and noble. The falling star was a bright slash of paint across the oaken sky. And Steely Pate had replaced the rim with new, thick steel and reinforced the back. He reminds Dunk of the old shield rhyme, Oak and iron, guard me well, or else I'm dead and doomed to hell, something that Sir Arlen had taught him as a boy, and that will stick with him as the day goes on. Heading back toward the lists, Dunk, now accompanied by Steely Pate, notices something peculiar going on. Though hundreds of small folk are turning out to watch the battle, they aren't the bloodthirsty mob he at first assumed they would be. Several of them offer him blessings and good fortune, and a maid kissed him on the cheek. With wonder, he realized that they were there to cheer for him, and he asks Pate, Why? What am I to them? A knight who remembered his vows is the answer, and surely that cheered Dunk somewhat, but perhaps not as much as what he found at the challenger's paddock. Thunder, now armored in good-quality heavy mail, and not one, but three knights, Robin Rissling, Humphrey Beesbury, and Humphrey Harding, all fresh from outstanding performances in the lists, with Harding a reigning champion, armored and ready to go, in spite of the broken leg he had suffered in his tilt with Arion, riding on Arion's own charger. Raymond had brought the Humphreys, and Egg had convinced Sir Robin, and then a moment later, another conscript, courtesy of Egg, arrived, Sir Lionel Baratheon, the Laughing Storm, another of the reigning champions of the tourney. And now they were six, but even as the company waited and hoped that Sir Stephen would bring the seventh, the challengers appeared, still only six themselves, the three Targaryens, armored all in black, accompanied by their three white knights of the King's Guard. And then Sir Stephen arrived and asked his cousin Raymond to begin armoring him. In answer to Dunk's question about the seventh of their party, Sir Stephen declared that they would actually be two nights short. He himself would be fighting as the seventh on the opposing side. Arian, true to his brother's prediction, had bought him with the promise of a lordship, a small enough price if it meant ensuring that Sir Duncan must default. And this is the origin of the two branches of House Fossaway, something that must have been in the forefront of George's world-building brain as he wrote this story, since the Fossaways, both red and green, featured quite prominently in A Storm of Swords in Renly Baratheon's arc and later at the Battle of Blackwater. Sir Stephen had made much of declaring that his cousin Raymond was not ripe, but when he betrayed his word to Dunk and went over to the other side, Raymond was so enraged he declared himself as having no part of it, provoking the original break within the family. Raymond would go on to ask for his knighthood from Dunk, who was strangely reluctant to bestow it, another potent hint that he hadn't been duly dubbed himself. In the end, Sir Lionel performed the honor, and Raymond repainted the red apple on his shield green, a reference to his cousin Taunts, 
now paired with one of his own. I fear I'm still not ripe, but better green than wormy, eh? And so Dunk was now short but one champion. While Arian mocked him, Lord Ashford declared that he must forfeit if he could not field the team of seven. Desperate, Dunk confronted the assembled lords and knights. My lords, do none of you remember Sir Arlen of Pennytree? I was his squire. We served many of you, ate at your tables, and slept in your halls. He was a good man, and he taught me how to be a knight. Not only sword and lance, but honor. A knight defends the innocent, he said. That's all I did. I need one more knight to fight beside me. One. That's all. And one by one, he asks, Sir Manfred Dondarrion, Lord Damon Lannister, Lords Caron, Swan, and Bracken. Not one would stand forth with him. And in a moment of rage and despair, he shouts, Are there no true knights among you? And then, and hands down one of the great moments of the canon, a black knight on a black stallion emerged from the mists and spoke. I will take Sir Duncan's side. Well, confusion reigned for a moment since the knight was wearing the armor and riding the horse of Valar, the young prince, but behind the visor was Prince Baylor Targaryen, smiling sadly. He was undoubtedly a true knight, ready to stand champion for a man whose crime had been to remember his own knightly vows to defend the weak, as he reminded his angry brother Makar a moment later. Let the gods determine if he was right or wrong, Baylor Breakspear declared. And then to strategy, and here Prince Baylor would take charge. While the opponents would be armed with war lances, the prince decreed the defenders would use tourney lances. Four foot longer than the heavier war lances, the tourney lances would increase their chances of unhorsing their opponents. Because the goal would be to get Arion and Daron to yield and withdraw their accusations before Dunk could be killed, Baylor wanted them to use every advantage at their disposal. And that would include making use of the king's guard vial that forbade three of the challengers from harming him. Let the others focus on Sir Stefan and the Targaryens, and leave the king's guard to the prince would be their strategy. And so then the skirmish unfolds. Like many such scenes described by George, it's mud and noise and pain and confusion. Dunk's field of vision is restricted by his great helm, which gives him tunnel vision and increases his sense of confusion, but George does a great job showing that in battle, that is a real thing. You have to keep focus on the task at hand, and if you stop to try and assess the field, you might just get a morning star to the head. Dunk faces off against Arion, and in the first pass, takes a lance to the side and loses his own, but manages to keep his seat. Then, as he attempts to evaluate the situation, Arian charges him again from behind, and he hits the ground, unhorsed now and weaponless. And it's when he struggles to his feet that the Morning Star hits him, and he falls again, this time with his helm dented around the temple in a bleeding wound obscuring half his vision. But just when Arian thinks to finish him off, Tonk of Fleabottom takes over, dragging the bright prince into the mud. Dunk tears his shield away from him and begins beating him with it. In an ironic twist on the familiar rhyme, Oak and Iron, guard me well, Arion is defeated by his own shield. Dunk has him pinned to the ground and wrenches his visor open, and the now terrified prince yields. 
And this scene is highly reminiscent of the end of another melee, also set in the Reach, but nearly a century in the future. Brienne of Tarth's victory over Loras Tyrell at Bitterbridge, seen in Catelyn Stark's point of view in A Clash of Kings, ends like this. The Blue Knight pulled a long dirk free and flicked open Tyrell's visor. The roar of the crowd was too loud for Catelyn to hear what Sir Loras said, but she saw the word form on his split, bloody lips. Yield. On a meta level, it's interesting to note that A Clash of Kings and The Hedge Knight were written around the same time, while we can't say for sure which scene was written first, we do think this is a strong hint that, at least in the matter of Dunk's descendants in the main series, George had already given a little thought to laying the groundwork in The Hedge Knight. And I'll be going over the issue of Dunk's descendant a little bit later in the episode. In the end, Dunk drags Arian through the mud to Lord Ashford, where the now brown prince withdraws his accusation. Dazed and confused, Dunk makes his way off the field, wondering to himself, I am a knight now, in truth? Am I a champion? He finds Egg, Raymond, and Steely Pate, who all set about removing his dented and damaged armor. Dunk's biggest concern is the casualties, and his companions give him the facts as they know them. Humphrey Beesbury, slain by Donald of Duskendale, Humphrey Harding, gravely wounded, Willem Wilde of the Kingsguard carried from the field, and Darren Targaryen suffered a broken foot after being unhorsed by Robin Rissling. Dunk is relieved with that last bit of news, saying, His dream was wrong then, the dead dragon. Unless Arian died. He didn't, though, did he? After being reminded that he had spared Arion, Dunk lay on his back, apparently forgetting the other two dragons that had taken part in the melee. But one of them shortly appeared, standing above him, giving advice and accepting Dunk's homage, but all the while seeming a bit off, unsteady on his feet and slurring his words. When Prince Baylor asks Raymond and Steely Pate to help him remove his helm, Pate notes, It's crushed down at the back, your grace, toward the left side, smashed into the gorget. The prince indicates that it was his brother Makar who struck him with his mace, and when Pate lifts the helmet away, Tunk sees something red and wet fall out. With people screaming and cursing, it seems like all hell must have broken loose in that moment. And then it says, Against the bleak gray sky swayed a tall, tall prince in black armor with only half a skull. You could see red blood and pale bone beneath, and something else, something blue, gray, and pulpy. A queer, troubled look passed across Baylor Breakspear's face, like a cloud passing before a sun. He raised his hand and touched the back of his head with two fingers, oh, so lightly, and then he fell. Dunk caught him. Up, they say he said, just as he had with thunder in the melee. Up, up! But he never remembered that afterward, and the prince did not rise. Baylor of House Targaryen, Prince of Dragonstone, Hand of the King, Protector of the Realm, and heir apparent to the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, went to the fire in the yard of Ashford Castle on the north bank of River Cottleswen. Other great houses might choose to bury their dead in the dark earth or sink them in the cold green sea, but the Targaryens were blood of the dragon, and their ends 
were ripped in flame. So it seems that no victory is without consequence, and as several characters in A Song of Ice and Fire will be fond of saying, only death can pay for life. Dunk's life-saving victory came at a very high cost to House Targaryen. It's no accident that the entire conflict originated with Targaryens, and Dunk, who had never seen a dragon a week previously, had been pulled into a vortex of events from which no one would emerge unscathed. Daron's dream, which he had so fearfully anticipated was about himself, in fact presaged the death of his uncle, and we'll have more on dragon dreams shortly. In the short term, House Targaryen would struggle to understand why their crown prince, arguably the best of them, would be taken from them in such a way. When Dunk paid his respects, Valar would put it this way, My father was only nine and thirty. He had it in him to be a great king, the greatest since Aegon the Dragon. Why would the gods take him and leave you? There was no answer Dunk could give to that, and he himself thinks that, quote, the world made no sense when a great prince died so a hedge knight might live. As he sat contemplating his foot, the foot Baylor died to save, Makar Targaryen arrived in his camp. Arion had been sent to Lys, he announced, a banishment, indeed, if not in fact, for the shame and disaster he had brought upon his house. And he confirmed that it was his mace that indeed struck the fatal blow to his brother, the only other opponents the prince had faced that day were the king's guard, who didn't strike him according to their vows. The exchange between Makar and Dunk is almost one of equals, for in this matter they are equals. Both were bowed beneath the guilt of Baylor's death, and both knew that the entire realm would never forget their roles in his death. No matter what happened in future, there would always be those who whispered, What if... And in those moments, the blame would fall on Makar, who struck the blow, or Dunk, for whose sake Baylor took the blow. When Dunk asks the existential question that's been plaguing him, how could my foot be worth a prince's life? Makar wonders if the gods like jokes, or perhaps there are no gods, or maybe it's all meaningless. And then he gets to the point of his visit. While well, it's time Aegon was a squire, he's declared that he'll serve no one but Sir Duncan, and Makar has come to offer Duncan a place in his household, to have Egg as his squire, and to continue his own training with the Master-at-Arms at Summerhall. What shall it be, Dunk? Dragonflies? Or dragons? Dunk considers the offer, which seems to be the answer to everything he's ever wanted. But he's learned much and more about knighthood and princes in the past few days. And it was the last words of one prince that the realm was in need of good men that prompted him to tell this prince, I will take your son as squire, your grace, but not at Summerhall, not for a year or two. He's seen sufficient of castles, I would judge. I'll have him only if I can take him on the road with me. Makar, utterly incredulous, replies, Aegon is a prince of the realm, the blood of the dragon. Princes are not made for sleeping in ditches and eating hard salt beef. 
Having drawn the line again between them, Prince Makar thus erased that moment of equality they had. But something in Dunk's demeanor made him ask the hedge knight to speak plainly. And, as only a hedge knight can, Dunk did so. Daron never slept in a ditch, I'll wager, and all the beef that Arion ever ate was thick and rare and bloody, like as not. And so Maycar looked at Dunk for a long time before taking his leave without another word. Dunk could hear the dragonfly's wings as it flew above his pool, and it seems like he made his choice after all. But the next morning, Egg was there, dressed in old clothes and a plain brown cloak. His father had commanded him to serve Sir Duncan, and the first order of business Dunk gives him is to saddle the horses. They're going over the Red Mountains to Dorne, where Egg hears they have good puppet shows. And so ends the story of the Hedge Knight, a short story that truly gets better with each reread. George has said the Duncan Egg stories are meant to be lighter than A Song of Ice and Fire, though he also expects they'll get darker as time goes on. This one in particular is truly a remarkable work, proving the simplicity and elegance of the short story form. George has had tremendous success with novellas and novelettes and often recommends them as a favored type of fiction, especially for developing writers. They're notoriously difficult to write, as the form demands an economy of words, not something George is actually known for. But in perfecting the novella, a writer learns to make every word count. And perhaps that's why we love A Song of Ice and Fire so much. In spite of its great abundance of words, they all seem to matter and resonate with the reader, a skill George undoubtedly learned while tinkering with countless short stories and novellas. Hopefully this summary section has addressed a lot of the small moments, as well as bigger themes and metatextual points. In the rest of the episode, I'll talk dragon dreams and a handful of theories. But first, the major theme of this story is knighthood, and that's what I'll be looking at next. Dunk wheeled thunder and raced back and forth before the tears of pale cold men. Despair made him shout, Are there no true knights among you? Only silence answered. Okay, so, knighthood and the idea of a true knight is one of the major themes of the novella. Early on, Dunk identifies Sir Arlen as a true knight, and he strives to uphold the code of knighthood throughout, from teaching Egg the duties of a squire to defending Tansel, the action that leads to the major conflict of the story. So let's look at Sir Arlen and his view of Hedge Knights, who, in his opinion, must abide by a code of knighthood specifically designed to set them apart from sellswords, because their knighthood is hard won, and lacking masters or land, in most cases, it's really all they have. There is, however, an upside to being a masterless knight and having the freedom to follow your own conscience and a sense of honor, and the men who follow the same code as Sir Arlen seem to zealously guard their honor, although we do see that not all hedge knights are created equal when Dunk mentions robber knights early on. Some hedge knights turn robber during lean winters. And when Brienne of Tarth encounters Sir Creighton Longbow and Sir Illifer the Penniless in the Riverlands a century later, she'd be extremely wary, thinking hedge knights had an unsavory reputation, and recalling the common saying, 
A hedge knight and a robber knight are two sides of the same sword. In spite of this, though, those two turned out to be reasonably honorable. Sir Creighton, in fact, would have much and more to say about true knights, that they must defend the gentler sex, that a true knight is the only shield the maiden needs, that a true knight swears by his sword, and that a sword is, quote, only as good as the man who wields it. That he's trying to discredit Brienne's abilities to defend herself only comes with the territory of her being a female warrior. But the lessons that Sir Arlen taught go right to the heart of ideals of chivalry and knighthood. A hedge knight is the truest kind of knight. Other knights serve the lords who keep them, or from whom they hold their lands, but we serve where we will, for men whose causes we believe in. Every knight swears to protect the weak and innocent, but we keep the vow best, I think. We certainly see ample evidence in the main series, as well as in this story, of anointed knights failing to keep that vow. From Arion Targaryen and Sir Stephen Fossaway, who sold out his ideals for the promise of a lordship, to Sir Gregor Clegane, anointed by another Targaryen prince, whose betrayal of his vows was egregious and monstrous enough to inspire from his younger brother the most cynical evaluation of knighthood we see in the series. A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows and the sacred oils and the lady's favors, there are silk ribbons tied round the sword. Maybe the sword's prettier with ribbons hanging off it, but it will kill you just as dead. So Sander Clegane sees war and killing as the main objectives of a knight, and on the one hand, he's being truthful, as only Sandor can be. But Barristan Selmy provides the best rejoinder to this opinion in A Dance with Dragons, telling his recruits in Marine, It is chivalry that makes a true knight, not a sword. Without honor, a knight is no more than a common killer. It is better to die with honor than to live without it. So chivalry, which seems to be synonymous with honor, is the key component to knighthood. And in that sense, Barristan and Sandor Clegane are actually in complete agreement, because the knights that Sandor knows do seem to exist without any chivalric values. The ideal of a true knight exists among those who place a high value on honor and honesty. Duncan the Tall is one such, and his descendant Brienne of Tarth is another, and so was Baylor Targaryen. Sir Arlen called Prince Baylor the soul of chivalry and judged other men's bravery by the standard of Baylor Breakspear. And it's clear that what Prince Baylor saw in Dunk was a reflection of that, since Sir Arlen would have modeled himself and his instruction upon those that he admired and valued. Dunk possessed honesty and a purity of purpose that translated into honor and chivalry, and clearly Prince Baylor observed and valued that quality. And we know some of the other qualities that would be highly valued in the chivalric code from looking at the knight's vows. In the hedge knight, we see Sir Lionel Baratheon knight Raymond Fossaway. The words accompany dubbing the new knight on his shoulders and begin like this. In the name of the warrior, I charge you to be brave. In the name of the father, I charge you to be just. In the name of the mother, I charge you to defend the young and innocent. In the name of the maid, I charge you to protect all women. And presumably the charges carry on for the crone and the smith, though perhaps the stranger is left out, since Westerosi practice often seems to be to ignore the stranger for fear of attracting its attention. 
But we can extrapolate that perhaps the crone would charge a knight to defend the aged, while the smith's charge would likely pertain to a knight's weaponry. And we do see Dunk and other knights placing a high value on keeping gear and weapons in good order. Dunk also valued hard work, acknowledging that he would have to earn his place among the assembled company at Ashford Meadows. His personal code also came with a laundry list of things a true knight must do, from caring for his horses to keeping himself clean. So we spent a lot of time talking about knights and knighthood when we did our knighthood series a few years ago, with analyses ranging from Brienne to Sandor and Jamie Lannister to Barristan Selmy. And we can learn a lot about knights from the internal point of view of men who are knights, like Jamie and Barristan, two men who don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything, but who do agree that men like Sir Arthur Dane and Gerald Hightower were of the highest order of knighthood. For example, Arthur Dane was known to have suspended his duel with the bandit the Smiling Knight to allow his opponent a chance to replace his sword, not something we'd ever see from someone like Gregor Clegane or even Arion Targaryen, who struck Dunk down from behind and while he was weaponless. True knights are few and far between in A Song of Ice and Fire, and in true Martinian form, certain of those who qualify aren't even knights at all. I am no sir is a phrase we see uttered by both Brienne of Tarth and Sandor Clegane, while one would have to go pretty far to make a case that Sandor was upholding a knight's vows explicitly, his scorn for the institution, as it's embodied by men like his brother and Amory Lorch, ultimately leads him to a place where he's actually doing some of the things a true knight would do. Brienne, on the other hand, begins from a position of idolizing Galadon of Morn, the perfect knight, and in spite of being a woman, spends her days trying to live up to that ideal. And then there's Dunk, who we know wasn't an anointed knight, at least not at first, but who went a very long ways towards earning the sobriquet true knight during the tourney at Ashford Meadows. Perhaps because he's so conscious of not having said the words, he works very hard to live up to the challenge of upholding a knight's vows. There's an interesting recurring theme where Dunk repeatedly calls himself a fool, and then the puppet Florian tells Jonquil, all men are fools, all men are knights, where women are concerned. And as I mentioned earlier, I think this draws a line from Dunk the Fool to Dunk the Knight, and even offers a bit of clever foreshadowing of the knight protecting a woman and being a fool in the bargain. But the vast majority of knights that we see are neither fools, nor monsters, nor heroes, but something in between. Many hedge knights are likely just men struggling to survive, some of whom succeed and some of whom turn robber when times are hard. Other knights might not be knights by choice, but because they're trying to advance their position, like Stefan Fossaway, or maybe trying to live up to someone else's expectations, like Daron Targaryen. Teron never wanted to be a knight, and he wasn't a very good one by his own admission. One thing he did do extremely well, though, besides drink wine, was dream. And it's his dreams, and dragon dreams in general, that I'll be talking about next. I dreamed of you. You stay away from me. You stay well away.
Dreams are a device that George uses frequently in lieu of vision or prophecy, perhaps because of their more ambiguous nature. It's not always possible to say for sure whether a dream is just a dream or something more. No fewer than 11 point-of-view characters have dreams that are significant to the plot. And while it's possible to subdivide dreams into those that are revelatory, either as windows into past events or into a possible future, one can also break them down even further into other categories. Fever dreams are one, warg dreams another, and a highly significant category at that. But of all the subsets of dreams that we see, dragon dreams are perhaps the most interesting. Dragon dreams seem to originate with Targaryens, the blood of the dragon, although we can't rule them out as something that was common to other Valyrians as well. In almost all the cases we see, they're prophetic, and in general, the dragons in the dreams personify actual Targaryens, whether the dreamer realizes it or not. Chronologically speaking, the first Targaryen we know of that had prophetic dreams was Daenys, the daughter of Lord Aenar Targaryen of Valyria, great-great-great-grandmother of Aegon the Conqueror. First mentioned in A Feast for Crows as the author of a book called Signs and Portents, Daenys foresaw the destruction of Valyria by fire, and following her prophetic dreams, her father moved the entire Targaryen clan, kin and dragons alike, to Dragonstone off the coast of Westeros. Thus, the Targaryens and a very small group of other Valyrians survived the doom when it came, and Daenys the Dreamer became perhaps the best known of all prophetic dreamers. But looking a little deeper at the story of Daenys might lead us to some interesting conclusions about dragon dreams. First of all, although we can't say for sure that dragons or Targaryens personified as dragons featured in her dreams, it's a reasonable hunch that they may have based on what we see in her descendants. Secondly, it seems highly unlikely that a dragon lord of Valyria would move his entire family and all their possessions to a small, rocky waste in the narrow sea based upon an unsubstantiated dream by his maiden daughter, unless one of two things were also true. Either she had a proven history of prophetic dreams, or such dreams were commonplace enough among Valyrians, or Targaryens at least, that a high value was placed upon them or both. Barring one of those things being true, one has only to consider Cassandra in the story of the Iliad, and you see what Daenys's lot might have been. Cassandra was the daughter of the king and queen of Troy and was cursed to make prophecies that were true, but that no one would believe. She foresaw the outcome of her brother Paris's abduction of Helen of Sparta, the Trojan War, but no one would listen to her. So in that case, a young woman prophesied her family's doom with tragic results, but by contrast, in the case of Danis, her father listened to her and acted appropriately. And given the further history of dragon dreams that we know of, perhaps a reasonable assumption is that prophetic dreams come with the territory of being blood of the dragon, at least for Targaryens. In addition to Danis, we know of numerous other Targaryens who seem to have dreamed of dragons. Daenerys dreams repeatedly throughout the main series, and in her dreams, members of her family are personified as dragons, often in ways that can be interpreted as prophetic. In The Hedge Knight, it's Darren Targaryen who has dragon dreams. When he first sees Dunk at the inn, he tells him, I dreamed of you. You stay away from me, do you hear? You stay well away. And later, when they meet again, after the trial by seven has been set, he explains further, I dreamed of you. 
My dreams are not like yours, Sir Duncan. Mine are true. They frighten me. You frighten me. I dreamed of you and a dead dragon, you see. A great beast, huge, with wings so large they could cover this meadow. It had fallen on top of you, but you were alive, and the dragon was dead. So Daron, at least, realizes that dragons in dreams represent Targaryens, and his conviction that his dreams are true, with the emphasis on the plural, puts him squarely in the first of the options we gave for Daenys, although it supports the second as well. And while at first, at the end, Dunk doesn't think much of Daron's words, after their second meeting, he seems to take them seriously, because when the trials concluded, Dunk's first thought was one of concern for Daron, that his dream might have come true. But the mistake that Daron and Dunk both made was in assuming that the dragon in Daron's dream was himself. It would, of course, turn out to be another dragon, Prince Baylor, who could aptly be compared with, quote, a great beast, huge, with wings so large they could cover this meadow. But Daron wasn't the only one in his family dreaming of dragons. While it's not explicitly stated in the Hedge Knight or even elsewhere, it seems highly likely that it was dragon dreams that convinced Arion that he was a dragon and would lead to his own death in the future when he drank wildfire in an attempt to wake the dragon within him. It would be nearly a hundred years later when Egg and Daron's brother, Aemon, would tell Samuel Tarly, I see dragons in my dreams, Sam. I see their shadows on the snow, hear the crack of leathern wings, feel their hot breath. My brothers dreamed of dragons, too, and the dreams killed them, every one. So we can interpret that Daron's dreams drove him to drink, a process that was likely underway even in the days of the Hedge Knight, although he is said to have died of a pox that he, quote, caught from a whore, and that Arion's dreams drove him mad. Aegon's death would be sadder, coming out of the tragedy at Summerhall, but it's said they were trying to hatch dragons there, and the strong implication is that dragon dreams played a role. We can also speculate that other Targaryens shown or reputed to be mad may have suffered from some kind of dragon dreaming that left them slightly unhinged, especially people like Aerys II, who thought to bring about his own apotheosis by wildfire, like his great-uncle Arion, and Aerys' son Viserys, whose repeated use of the phrase wake the dragon and the incorporation of that phrase into his sister's dreams just might indicate that he experienced something similar. Then we have Targaryens who, like Daenys, may have had prophetic dreams that drove them or their family to make specific military or political decisions. It was apparently a dragon dream of Daemon II Blackfire that led to the Second Blackfire Rebellion in 211 AC. Duncan the Tall will have a starring role in Daemon's dreams as well, and will address the Second Blackfire Rebellion and the dreams that led to it in more detail when we're covering the Mystery Night. In brief, though, Daemon's dreams convinced a group of Blackfire supporters to try their hand at another rebellion, and as in the case of Daenys the Dreamer, one has to assume that Targaryen dreams must be fairly common or well-known to have the power to convince people to take such drastic actions. And so, while it's never explicitly stated, we might even start to wonder, or theorize, as fans do, whether notable Targaryens like Aegon the Conqueror or Prince Rhaegar may have also had some kind of prophetic dreams. It's interesting to contemplate if it was dreams that led Aegon to decide the time had come to conquer and unify Westeros, 
And one of the key moments in Rhaegar's backstory, as relayed by Barristan Selmy to Danny in A Storm of Swords, deals with his sudden decision that he must learn to be a warrior. As Barristan, then going by Arstan Whitebeard, puts it, One day Prince Rhaegar found something in his scrolls that changed him. No one knows what it might have been, only that the boy suddenly appeared early one morning in the yard as the knights were donning their steel. He walked up to Sir Willem Darry, the master-at-arms, and said, I will require sword and armor. It seems I must be a warrior. Well, tilt your perspective for a minute and contemplate the possibility that Rhaegar had a dream that changed him. While he was well known as a scholar, he was also melancholic and dreamy. We certainly can't rule out the scrolls, and that's the likely explanation. But if you recall how concrete Barristan Selmy is and how unlikely he is to consider a more mystical explanation and that this is the only source we have for this tidbit of information, well, maybe dreams did play a role. Unreliable narrators aside, based on everything we know about the Targaryen dynasty, it seems reasonable that dragon dreams might have come into the story of Rhaegar, and in fact may have shaped Targaryen history in many more ways than we're presently aware. And so, having mentioned all of her male family members, we should also talk about Daenerys, who has dragon dreams starting in A Game of Thrones that continue across A Clash of Kings, A Storm of Swords, and A Dance with Dragons. Her dreams involve her unborn son and herself, both personified as dragons, and her brothers Viserys and Rhaegar play prominent roles in them as well. Danny's dreams seem frequently prophetic, even if sometimes only in a self-discovery mode. And speaking of prophecy, her vision quest in The House of the Undying, while not exactly a dream, does have a single element that supports the idea that Rhaegar may have had dreams, or at least visions of some sort. While traveling down the corridor of the House of the Undying, Danny comes across a doorway through which she sees a man who resembles her brother Viserys and a woman with a newborn babe. The babe is named Aegon, and the man says, He has a song, the man replied. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. This has been confirmed by George to be Rhaegar and Aelia, and in A Feast for Crows, we learn that a comet, and possibly something else, led Rhaegar to believe that his son fulfilled an ancient prophecy about a promised prince. But whether the prophecy also had an element pertaining to the three-headed dragon of the Targaryen sigil, or if that was Rhaegar's interpretation, we don't know for sure. We do know that in Danny's vision, her brother apparently sees her watching from the doorway. He looked up when he said it, and his eyes met Danny's, and it seemed as if he saw her standing there beyond the door. There must be one more, he said, though whether he was speaking to her or the woman in the bed, she could not say. The dragon has three heads. Now, this has always struck me as an odd bit of the vision, where Danny seems to bridge the gap of time and space and actually become visible to Rhaegar in the past for a moment. We don't fully understand everything that happened in the House of the Undying, as it seems to go far beyond a typical vision, and it definitely isn't a dream per se. So why would this part of a bizarre vision be pertinent to a discussion of dragon dreams? And the answer, again, requires a bit of a change of perspective. Considered from Rhaegar's point of view, if indeed Danny somehow transcended time and space in that moment, and he himself had an actual vision of her in the doorway, might this not fall into the category of dragon dreams for him? 
I mean, how else would someone explain this type of vision, especially in a family known for having true or prophetic dreams? So based on available data, we conclude that there seems to be some quality inherent in Targaryens, which may have extended to other Valyrians in the past, that leads them to have highly unusual dreams featuring dragons. These dreams may be related to their close connection with dragons, which even in the low magic realm of A Song of Ice and Fire are painted as highly magical beasts, as their apparent extinction led to magic leaving the world and their rebirth has brought it back. In Danny's point of view, we see a variety of dragon dreams that look at the past, at her own identity, and very likely her future, and she almost certainly sees Morrow's never made when dreaming of her unborn son in A Game of Thrones. Her son was tall and proud with Drogo's copper skin and her own silver-gold hair, violet eyes shaped like almonds, and he smiled for her and began to lift his hand towards her, but when he opened his mouth, the fire poured out. She saw his heart burning through his chest, and in an instant... He was gone, consumed like a moth by a candle, turned to ash. And that, of course, is when she knows that her son hasn't survived his premature birth, and like any good Targaryen, his end is writ in the flames there. The relatively steady rate of dreams in Danny's arc supports the idea that such dreams may be more common than not with those who are blood of the dragon, as does Darren Targaryen's words to Dunk, my dreams are not like yours, mine are true. The implication that this dream of the tourney isn't the first one Daron has had, and that he's had sufficient experience to know that his dreams either predict or reveal reality, supports the idea that these dreams are an inherent Targaryen trait akin to their silver hair and purple eyes. And I want to point out that Blood of the Dragon doesn't have to be an actual Targaryen in name, since we see Daemon II Blackfire confirmed having dragon dreams, and then there's Shireen Baratheon. The great-granddaughter of Egg's daughter Rael, Shireen describes a dream in A Clash of Kings that sounds like a dragon dream. I had bad dreams about the dragons. They were coming to eat me. And while she could be the victim of an overactive imagination, growing up there on Dragonstone, where her ancestor, Rhaenyra, was devoured by her own dragon. Given speculation about her fate, there's a strong possibility that this is a prophetic dragon dream with the dragons personifying fire in this case. Finally, the fact that the reality the dreams reveals isn't always exactly as it's interpreted by the dreamer is more of a commentary on the tricky nature of interpreting prophecy than on the quality of dragon dreams as a predictor, Prophecy is notoriously tricky, and it was after Sam related the words of Maester Aemon about dragon dreams and prophecy to Archmaester Marwyn that we first heard the words of Gorgon of Old Gis about prophecy. Like a treacherous woman, she'll bite your prick off every time. It's true that of all the dreamers we've looked at, most of them seem to have run into some issue of interpretation. In fact, the dragon dreams that seem to be interpreted most successfully so far belong to Danys the Dreamer, which makes her a fairly appropriate bookend to Daenerys in A Song of Ice and Fire. And perhaps being female is the key to avoiding what Gorgon found to be the pitfall of prophetic interpretation. We'll have to wait and see on that. One thing that does seem very clear is that dragon dreams, of all types of prophetic dreams we see, are quite accurate in retrospect, and due to their prominence in the Targaryen family backstory, seem poised to play a major role in the plot going forward. 
From a metatextual standpoint, the fact that George incorporated them into Danny's arc beginning in A Game of Thrones and then added dragon dreams to the Hedge Knight as a key plot point reveals that he intended this role for them from very early on and that it was one of the more important backstory elements for him to include as he began expanding his world. On that note, I'm sure we haven't had the last word on Dragon Dreams by any means. Not even in this episode, since Dragon Dreams just might come up again in the final segment, where I'll have a rundown of some of the fan theories inspired by the Hedge Knight. I dreamed of you. My dreams are not like yours, Sir Duncan. Mine are true. They frighten me. So there have been a number of fan theories inspired by the stories of Duncan Egg, not the least of which is that Brienne of Tarth is Dunk's descendant in the main series, a long-time theory which has since been confirmed, and which I'll go over the main points of here. I'll also look at a lesser-known theory called Dragonfly Among the Reeds, which I find kind of interesting, and a third, relatively common, if not frequently discussed, theory that I'll focus the most on and am calling the Lord Commander's Foot. So first, let's address Brianna Tarth. Very soon after The Hedge Knight was released, fans started asking George if we see any of Sir Duncan's descendants in the main series. Initially, his answer was the usual KG maybe, until December 2000 at a book signing for A Storm of Swords, when he did answer a fan's query in the affirmative. And I already mentioned one of the possible hints at a similarity when describing Dunk's combat with Arion Targaryen in the melee. That was a parallel that, if it was intended, was laid out in 1998 with the publication of The Hedge Knight and Clash Kings. It was in A Storm of Swords, published in 2000, that we saw a couple of new and stronger hints. Both come from Jamie Lannister, who asks Brienne, Are you as thick as a castle wall? a seemingly common saying in Westeros that was also used to describe Dunk. And then when Jamie returns to rescue Brienne from the bear pit at Harrenhal, he says, I dreamed of you. The exact words Prince Daron used to Dunk twice in The Hedge Knight. In 2003, with the publication of The Sworn Sword, George may have laid another hint, although this one was buried pretty deep, and the reveal wouldn't come until the World of Ice and Fire revealed certain genealogical details about the Lannisters in 2014, Rohan Weber, whom Dunk experiences a good deal of romantic tension with in The Sworn Sword, turns out to be Jamie Lannister's great-grandmother. Given the tension between Jamie and Brienne, this relationship turns out to be a really neat parallel hidden in the details of history. Finally, in 2005, with the release of A Feast for Crows, we got a motherload of clues coming after George confirmed to fans that there would be a descendant of Dunks in that volume. When Brienne leaves King's Landing, she's bearing an oak shield with the black bat of Lothston on it, found in the armory at Harrenhal by Jamie. It's noted more than once that the Lothston shield is bad luck, and also by Sir Illifer the Penniless that the device isn't hers to bear. Now, this is already similar to Dunk, who was told by Prince Baylor in The Hedge Knight that Sir Arlen's device was not his to bear, and who would wear a hanged man upon his shield in The Mystery Knight and be told how unlucky it was. 
When Brienne seeks out a painter in Duskendale to repaint her black bat shield, she describes the design she wants. It says, Your door reminded me of an old shield I once saw in my father's armory. She described the arms as best as she could recall them. And when she returns to retrieve the shield, we get a full description. It was more a picture than a proper coat of arms, and the sight of it took her back through the long years to the cool dark of her father's armory. She remembered how she'd run her fingertips across the cracked and fading paint over the green leaves of the tree and along the path of the falling star. Compare that to the description of Dunk's shield painted by Tansel Tutal in The Hedge Knight. The sunset colors were rich and bright, the tree tall and strong and noble. The falling star was a bright slash of paint across an oaken sky. So the shield was a match, and then there's the squire. Both Dunk and Brienne travel the countryside accompanied by their loyal squire. Pod and Egg are quite different, but they're alike in their devotion to their masters, and of course, having a three-letter name. The names Pod and Egg even have similar connotations as words relating to the propagation of life. Go figure. Add the well-established size of both Dunk and Brienne, their shared devotion to the institution of knighthood, and the fact that both will experience a spectrum of knighthood from Hedge Knight to Kingsguard, while at the same time being outsiders— and so far as we know, neither is an anointed knight, though for different reasons. And in Dunk's case, at least, that might change. Finally, another textual Easter egg came at the end of Brienne's A Feast for Crows arc when she's told she has a choice, sword or noose in her case, which echoes down the years from Baylor Breakspear telling Dunk, you have another choice when offering the options of choosing a trial by battle. Sword or noose indeed at least metaphorically. And the last thing to mention in the way of hints and evidence is George's comments when asked after a feast for crows if he would reveal Dunk's mystery descendant. He said, I gave a pretty strong hint in the new book. And when the questioner told him that he suspected Brienne, but thought that was too obvious and that George would be more subtle than that, George said, you think? So now having laid out the case, Fast forward, or rewind, have it your way, to 2016, when George was a guest of honor at Balticon 50, a sci-fi and fantasy convention in Baltimore, Maryland. I was there, along with a lot of other folks from the fandom, and during a book signing, fellow fan Kristen Trito, who's a moderator at the A Song of Ice and Fire Facebook group, asked him, will we ever learn how Brienne descends from Dunk? George answered, eventually, all will be revealed in time. So, with a very well-phrased question, at long last, Brienne of Tarth, as a descendant of Sir Duncan the Tall, was confirmed, and for the record, after the fact, Adam Whitehead of the Wirt Zone spoke with one of George's assistants just to make sure that that was his intention, and she was able to confirm the confirmation. Although, the question of how that relationship came to be, and why Dunk's shield ended up in an armory on Tarth is still shrouded in the mists of history... So the mystery isn't entirely solved, and there's still room for plenty of fan speculation. As George would say, we'll have to keep reading. Okay, now for the second theory. And this one doesn't have much to do with Duncan Egg per se, but rather with one of Egg's children. But as it was inspired by a line from the Hedge Knight, I thought it would be fun to include it. 
It's not commonly known and is one of those hidden identity theories that thrive in various forums. And while there are elements that might seem unlikely as we've received more backstory about Egg's family, it hasn't been completely ruled out. And at its heart, it contains some ideas that I find pretty interesting. The theory is called Dragonfly Among the Reeds, which is taken from this line in The Hedge Knight. He sat naked under the elm while he dried, enjoying the warmth of the spring air on his skin as he watched a dragonfly move lazily among the reeds. Why would they name it a dragonfly, he wondered. It looks nothing like a dragon. This line goes on with Dunk's thoughts about dragons and never having seen one, which I mentioned earlier. The fan, going by the name Ibison from Ibbin, who originally posted this theory in 2013, which can be found in full at westeros.org, postulated that Jenny of Oldstones was one of the Cranigmen, a member of House Reed, in fact, and that when she and Egg's son, Prince Duncan the Small, married, they had a son named Howland. The release of The World of Ice and Fire in 2014 presented some logistical issues, but nothing that couldn't be resolved by an adjustment or two, and so it hasn't been ruled out completely. First, a few facts about Prince Duncan and his Jenny. Prince Duncan was Aegon V's eldest child, likely born sometime in the 220s. In 239, he defied his father's wishes and broke his betrothal with Lord Lionel Baratheon's daughter that had been made a couple of years previously to marry the, quote, strange, lovely, and mysterious woman, Jenny of Oldstones. Though Jenny claimed descent from long-dead kings of the First Men, perhaps from House Mud, the very kings who once inhabited Old Stones and that we hear about in Catelyn's point of view in A Storm of Swords, she was widely assumed to be of peasant stock. Whatever her background, she was unsuitable as a wife for the Crown Prince, who was already betrothed to another in any case. But Duncan stubbornly refused to set her aside and honor his betrothal to Lord Lionel's daughter, instead choosing to abdicate his position of Prince of Dragonstone and his rights to the crown. The title Crown Prince passed to his brother Jaehaerys, and Prince Duncan was henceforth known as Prince of Dragonflies. So there's the connection to the line from the Hedge Knight. Prince of Dragonflies is likely a joke or an insult, but it's never exactly explained where it came from. Jenny herself was eventually accepted by the royal family as Lady Jenny and was beloved by the small folk. The pair became the subject of many songs and surely their deaths at the tragedy of Summerhall in 259 AC did nothing to change that. So while it's never mentioned in the world of ice and fire or elsewhere that the two had children, it's also of note that Egg's sisters, Ray and Della, are known to have had children, but their marriages and offspring aren't noted yet in any family tree, meaning that it's possible that Targaryen descendants from that branch exist that are still hidden from readers. And although the timeline offered by the World of Ice and Fire probably rules out Howland as their son, unless he was born quite late in their 20-year marriage and not long before their deaths, it's still possible that Howland could be a descendant. Jenny herself wouldn't even have to be a member of House Reed, but as a Cranig woman married to a Targaryen prince, could have had daughters that would be considered suitable to wed a Reed, making Howland possibly a grandson of Duncan and Jenny. The original post contains some speculation about implications of the theory that, if true, wouldn't be changed by any of these adjustments, although they weren't the elements that I found most interesting or likely. 
I'll leave the merits of the theory for you to decide, and while for my part I don't necessarily believe there's an explicit connection between Duncan the Small and House Reed, I can't rule it out, and I definitely like the idea that Jenny was one of the Cranach men. Their noted close relationship with the Children of the Forest fits well with Jenny's companion, the Woods Witch, also known as the Ghost of High Heart. Not to mention that the fact that she appears to have been seen as an outsider by locals around Old Stones might be explained by her originating in the Neck, just north of the place her prince found her. And I loved the connection drawn between the Prince of Dragonflies and his namesake, Sir Duncan, watching a dragonfly among the reeds all those years ago. And now, finally, we come to the third theory, which is the theory that could explain Sir Duncan's entire raison to etch. In the aftermath of Baylor Breakspear's death, as I mentioned, Dunk has an existential crisis of sorts. In his interview with Prince Makar, he puts it like this. If I had not fought, you would have had my hand off, in my foot. Sometimes I sit under that tree there and look at my feet and ask if I couldn't have spared one. How could my foot be worth a prince's life? Makar, engulfed in his own crisis, is not even sure that gods exist and wonders if the tree offers any answer. Dunk replies, none that I can hear. But the old man, Sir Arlen, every day at evenfall, he'd say, I wonder what the morrow will bring. He never knew, no more than we do. Well, mightn't it be that some morrow will come when I'll have need of that foot, when the realm will need that foot? even more than a prince's life? And so naturally, with a statement like that to go on, speculation in the fandom is that one day, Sir Duncan will do something so heroic that the realm will be forever in his debt. Certainly, being a true knight, Egg's mentor, and eventual Kingsguard might count as making a difference to the realm. And the mere fact of having a foot made it possible for him to do all those things. Even some of the small experiences that we see in the Duncan Egg novellas, saving Rohan Weber from marrying Lucas Longinch, thus leaving her free to eventually become the great-grandmother of Jamie Lannister, who would save King's Landing from the madness of Egg's grandson, or having a role in foiling the plot that would have launched a second Blackfire Rebellion at White Walls in the Mystery Night, thereby saving untold hundreds or thousands of lives, might qualify as pretty far-reaching heroism. But many fans think there has to be something more, something so significant that the realm's very survival may have hung in the balance. Besides the events of the three novellas, and a handful of other tantalizing tidbits, what we know of Sir Duncan the Tall is that he would eventually become the Lord Commander of Aegon V's Kingsguard. This honor would have come relatively late in Dunk's life, when he was in his 40s, and considering we first meet him when he's a youth of 16 or 17, that leaves many years unaccounted for that he could have been doing amazing, heroic, realm-saving things. And very likely he was, but we're going to actually look ahead to the end of Dunk's life which we know came about in 259 AC when he was in his late 60s. Late in Aegon's reign, the king had become obsessed with the idea that dragons would enable him to enforce many of the reforms he wished to put in place to benefit his beloved small folk that his powerful lords were less than enthusiastic about. 
Encouraged by his lifelong dragon dreams, Aegon commissioned searches the world over for lore that would help him to bring dragons back to Westeros. As far away as a shy by the shadow, he searched, and while we don't know what he found in his searches, there's a strong implication that he found something, since he gathered his family, the blood of the dragon, about him in 259, ostensibly to celebrate the birth of his first great-grandchild to his grandchildren, Aerys and Rhaella, at Summerhall. The very name Summerhall was once associated with pleasure and idols, the castle built there by Daron II, serving as a seat of numerous princes of House Targaryen, including Aegon V's father Makar. Daron was married to the Dornish princess Mariah Martell, and I'm going to speculate that he may have built Summerhall to be something akin to the water gardens from her home, a place where the ruling family could escape the pressures of their capital city. But by the time of the events in A Song of Ice and Fire, quote, the word was fraught with doom, and that is because of the events that took place there in 259. We don't know exactly what happened, except that the blood of the dragon gathered with seven dragon eggs to honor the seven, that there were pyromancers and wildfire and what Barristan Selmy would later term sorcery. It's possible that there were seven Targaryens present, one for each egg, if you include the newborn Rhaegar, and even more possible that a dream of a dragon being born at Summerhall played a role in the plan. In what was an apparent effort to hatch dragons from the seven eggs, a conflagration was started that quickly grew out of control and destroyed the castle, killing several family members, even as the birth that they had gathered to celebrate was taking place. Among the dead would be Aegon himself, his son, Duncan the Small, and most likely his wife, Lady Jenny. Prince Jaehaerys would survive, and his children, Aerys and Rhaella, and their newborn son, Rhaegar. We don't know the fate of Queen Betha, whether she was present and survived, or whether she perished in the flames, or perhaps had died some time before. The same goes for numerous other members of Aegon's family that may have been invited, though we do know that Princess Shara, at least, outlived her father, though whether she was present hasn't been confirmed, though we do find it likely that she was. The only other significant known casualty would be Sir Duncan the Tall. And the World of Ice and Fire gave us a little insight into the tragedy, with a fragment of text allegedly left behind by Archmaester Gildane, who was the last maester to serve at Summerhall. In the fragment, he mentions the details of the family gathering, the eggs, the pyromancers, and then it says this, Many words are missing, but we can guess the context. Flames grew out of control, towering, burned so hot that died, but for the valor of the Lord command. Then that's it. That's our window into the end of Dunk's life. And it's here that our speculation on his significance to the realm should focus. On that day of tragedy, someone or some people would have died but for his valor. This is no surprise, given the dunk we know, and the vows that we know he'll have taken to defend and protect members of the royal house. Of the known survivors that may have been saved by Sir Duncan, the focus most often falls upon Rhaella and her newborn son. While Jaehaerys and Ares could well have escaped on their own, a young woman recently brought to bed with a child does seem the most likely to have needed assistance. We can imagine Sir Duncan carrying Rhaella and Rhaegar to safety and then returning to the Inferno to look for Aegon or his namesake Prince Duncan and perishing in the process. 
And once again, his foot in this case may be a metaphorical reference, as in the mere existence of a foot, of him having a foot rather than an amputated limb, gave him the power to perform this act. Or some fans speculate that he did something that actually involved his foot, like kicking down a door, for instance. But what thanks should the realm give for having exchanged Baylor Breakspear, a prince who, quote, had it in him to be a great king, the greatest since Aegon the Dragon, for a newborn babe that would grow up to become the flashpoint of a rebellion that led to the downfall of his house? Well, the answer very possibly lies in the scrolls of dragon lore that Aegon V had collected, or at least in some scrolls that resided in the library at the Red Keep, or perhaps on Dragonstone. We know that Rhaegar would grow up to be a scholar, among other things, and that he was melancholic, always haunted by the memory of Summerhall. Growing up knowing that the brave Sir Duncan had died saving him, or perhaps had saved him first before going into the fire to save others and thus losing his life, would go a long way towards explaining his melancholy. And so would having some mystical knowledge that there was a destiny upon him that had led to him being singled out as worthy of saving. The woods witch who came to court with Lady Jenny had apparently prophesied that a promised prince would be born of the line of Rhaella and Ares, which had led to their marriage in the first place. If Jaehaerys and Aegon believed in this prophetic statement, Rhaegar and Rhaella's survival at Summerhall would have been paramount. But the knowledge of this prince didn't just come from the Woods Witch. The promised prince figured in a prophecy that seems to be more or less widely known, at least among those educated in such things. King Aerys I had read about the return of the dragons in a prophecy, possibly connected to the promised prince. And Melisandre of Ashai speaks of the prince who was promised, who must stand against the great other, interchangeably with Azor Ahai. Maester Aemon, who communicated with his great-great-nephew Rhaegar about the prophecy, gives Sam Tarly a basic primer to it on Bravos. It was a prince that was promised. Rhaegar, I thought. The smoke was from the fire that devoured Summerhall on the day of his birth, and the salt from the tears shed for those who died. He shared my belief when he was young, but later he became persuaded that it was his own son who fulfilled the prophecy— for a comet had been seen above King's Landing on the night Aegon was conceived, and Rhaegar was certain the bleeding star had to be a comet. So a prince, born amidst salt and smoke under the sign of a bleeding star, has been prophesied to save Westeros by standing against the other. Melisandre will think it's Stannis, the grandson of Egg's daughter Rael, while Rhaegar, Stannis's cousin, will think it's himself, until he revises his opinion to it being his son. Aemon was arriving at the conclusion that it was Daenerys in that passage, saying, the dragons prove it, after he realized that she had succeeded in hatching three dragons, indicating that there is a likely connection between the prophecy Ares I had read about dragons returning and the prophesied prince. And while there isn't 100% agreement among fans, it seems to me that the most likely explanation was Rhaegar's own interpretation. Remembering Melisandre's thought, I pray for a glimpse of Azor Ahai, and R'hllor shows me only snow. It seems pretty clear that Rhaegar's son, not Aegon, as he thought at first when writing to his kinsman Maester Aemon, but Jon Snow, his son with Lyanna Stark, is the prince that was promised, slash Azor Ahai, who will stand against the other when they come to Westeros. And so, 
In saving baby Rhaegar from the Inferno at Summerhall, Sir Duncan the Tall may have safeguarded the future of Westeros, ensuring that the day would come when the realm would be thankful for his foot and would find that Baylor Breakspear's life may not have been too high a price to pay after all. And that's the possibly true story of how Sir Duncan the Tall, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, saved Westeros from eternal darkness with a selfless act of heroism that wouldn't have been possible but for another selfless act by the greatest knight of his own day, Prince Baylor Targaryen, all as described for us in the story of the Hedge Knight. Sounds like a pretty nifty way to tie it all together in the end. Let us know what you think. Mightn't it be that some morrow will come when I'll have need of that foot? When the realm will need that foot? Even more than a prince's life? Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode all about the Hedge Knight. And I'll be back soon with more new content for you. There are some exciting collaborations planned in our future, and I'll be continuing the journey through the Duncan Egg novellas as well. And now, as usual, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. Martin for Duncan Egg, and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Heartfelt thanks to Jill, Lady Silverwing, Peppernix, Dean, Aileen, Josh, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Marja the Mage, Jessica, June, John H, Lady of the Frostfangs, William James, Sir Bobby the Knight, thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Maltude, Christian, Yorlen, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, the Madmaster of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Arrowdo, Marcel, Joseph of House Rulo, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Blythe Spirit, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Ash Marie, Painkiller Jane, Hare Krishna, Dutch Defender of the Berm, The Red Woman, Brian, Lizzie, Phil, Lenny, Clay, Monero Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Tammy, Goldie Juke, Clarissa, Lady Storch, Ezra, Rachel, Joseph, Kevin, Danielle, Dennis, The Orange Man, Emma, Judson, Lauren, Crimson Kate, Emily of the Erie, Terry, Melissa, Maria, Ryan, Stephen, Matthew, Derek, Sir Kyle Dane, Wielder of Sundown, Axe of the Afternoon, and Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackroom, Sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithamancers Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube and Spotify, and of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.